Thank you, Neil. If you were listening to Neil read, or if you were reading, or paying attention, you may be like, "Uh uh-oh, it's that day. Uh, or you may be fired up, like, yeah, it's, it's that day. Uh, or maybe, maybe not. I hope, uh, actually, I would prefer you have one of those reactions. My son, my oldest son, Jack, uh, had a swim meet today, so he's not here. Uh, we love, we just love Sunday competition, you know. Uh, that's facetious, sarcasm there. Uh, just to translate, uh, we don't. But uh, he had a swim meet, and he told his mama, he said, uh, and I'm glad I'm not going to church today. Not what, you know, his dad, as a dad and as pastor of the church he goes to, wants to hear. And she was like, well, why not? It's like, because it's, it's, it's the sex day, you know. And because uh, he was doing the math, because he actually has been following, uh, and if you have the series Money, Sex, Marriage. So he was listening, so he knew what today uh, was on. Uh, but actually, it, what I most want to talk about today uh, is actually not sex, it is hope. Hope. So the main theme of, of the message uh, of what, I, what the Lord led me to and what I hope the Lord leads you to is hope. Hope. Now, now interestingly, here's a big word for you, English major I am, etymology uh, means like the, the origin of the word or what the, the word originally uh, meant, okay? The etymology, this is really interesting, okay? Because sometimes we'll see words in the Bible and the original meaning of the original word what was in Greek can mean something that could be vastly different from the original meaning of the English word. And hope is one of them. Now, I didn't know that you, you learn something new uh, every, every day, but you can learn something new every, every week when you're preaching. So the, the original meaning of the word hope in English is actually tied to uncertainty. So when you say, well, like, I hope this happens, or I hope for this, very, and, you know, it, it really opened my eyes, because I think like this. So yeah, when I say hope, there is a, there's a base, there's a foundation in my mind that's like, well, it might not happen. Okay? New Testament Christianity... Greek word hope that they used was totally different in that the foundation was that there was a certainty instead of uncertainty. There was a certainty for New Testament Christians. There was a certainty when you see the word hope uh, in the New Testament. And in fact, in the Old Testament too, Jeremiah 29, there's that classic, many of you know it, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, uh, plans for you to prosper and to give you a future and a hope, okay? The word hope in the Bible carries this, uh, this belief of certainty. And for New Testament Christians, for Christians, uh, that word hope, there was a certainty in the joyous reality of God's future for their life, uh, both in the present, what they were moving to on the journey, uh, but also in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, which I believe, and you may not know of, will come to pass. And as we'll see, as, uh, as Neil said, this world is passing away. And that Christians are to have this hope that, yes, our, our souls will go to heaven, okay? Sometimes we start with that. But there will be a resurrection of the bodies. 
A revelation says the heavens and the earth will unite. And God's full family uh, will be here. And we will have purposes in this new heavens and new earth. And it's a joyous reality that can be experienced today. And it totally goes against uh, much of what society, culture, the world, the devil, the lies puts into our mind. Because we'll say, well, I hope for this. And there's so much uncertainty tied to that word. So I'd ask you first and foremost, uh, what is your hope? Or uh, what is your hope like? If you think about your hopes. Like how much uncertainty is tied to your hopes? Or how much certainty is tied to it? Like I know that that's going to be a reality. And I have a, a joyous sense of God's future for my life. Let me say this as pastor. I want everybody here, every member, everyone connect. I want you to flourish in life. If you, if you don't know that or, or think that, I really want you to know that. Like I want this congregation to flourish. And that's why I, I would start, before we get into this topic, my hope for this church. Uh, and I want to address something that's on your, uh, it's on your program, but there's a, a handout uh, back in the foyer. If you didn't pick one up, please pick one up. Because we had a, a Wednesday night meeting a general meeting, so members and if you felt connected uh, to the church, as in like you might not be a member, of the next season, the new season in the life of this church, and you're going to be hearing me talk about it more. And I know, I hope, and when I say hope that it's a certainty, we'll see it lived out. And we're calling this, this mission for the next season. Uh, many of you know we exited a denomination, we've entered into a network, but the future for this church to me, is a joyous reality. Let me say that again. The future of this church is a joyous reality because I know the supernatural power, peace, presence, as we prayed about at the beginning, of God and all he can do. And I know the people that we have and the leaders that we have and moving in the same direction. So we're calling this Grow 3 and that we're going to be very intentional about growing in three ways over the next several seasons, several years. Growing in people, uh, new people growing and giving. Uh, we have some set plans for the capacity of money, which we are preaching about, and growing in our going. We already have people. We already have capacity. And money is only capacity. Let me say that. Money is capa- capacity for this building. Yes, for this corner so we can do things. Capacity to go and growing in our going. Uh, and the blessing is I've already shared this with leaders uh, to see people literally uh, buying in uh, to this mission, you know, so much so that, uh, you know, that people have, uh, you know, have given, uh, and we are setting some short-term goals for this year, which is addressed on that handout, which I hope you pick up, and some long-term goals uh, to quickly, or as soon as the Lord allows it, uh, to pay off this property. Because, let me tell you this if you didn't know it already, uh, before we were part of a denomination that technically owned this property, and one of the reasons we exited the domination, I mean, really, is that we wanted the people of this church to own it. And now you do. And so now we're setting up some future plans for the flourishing, further flourishing, of, of this community. And so my hope for this church, let me say this very clear, I hope this church has zero uncertainty in it. And it's not because of me as pastor, because there are going to be other pastors in the life of this church, okay? Just so you know that. Or not, because particular leaders, because leaders are going to come and leaders are going to go. My hope is that 
I know that God has called people to start this church, plant this church, grow this church. And I know that his hand uh, is in it with the people going. And it's going to flourish more and more by his power, uh, by his presence, and by us having his peace. Amen? Amen? Amen. I hope, I hope that y'all will know that. And I believe that you will. So I say that to uh, look, either the program, uh, the packet, uh, to try to give you uh, information. But uh, to believe in big things. And sometimes I think we get tied up in like that God doesn't want big things for my life. When I say my life, I mean in your life. But the hope for Christians here, totally different. Because they're, they're like, it's not about me, it's, not, it's about Jesus, and I know he's got this ultimate plan and purpose and destiny that will go on forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth, and the hope was a certainty. And so, you know, I'd love for us to live that, not just see it. And there's a tremendous difference. So, what does it have to do with sex? Well, everything. Because I've spent now uh, 15 years in ministry thereabouts at different churches, but uh, had a lot of counseling experience, uh, which I didn't necessarily seek out because I'm not trained as a counselor. But much of my, like, quote, counseling uh, happens in informal settings. Uh, it's like just hanging out or with friends or with talking. It's not like, hey, I want to set an appointment with you and talk about this or that. But I hear a lot as a pastor, and it's kind of tied up to my call, so I hear a lot of hopes that are filled with uncertainty. Okay? And some of those hopes have to do around sex, uh, have to do around being single, not yet married, have to do around being married. For example, I've, I've heard before, uh, I, you know, people have said, I hope that I get to have good sex. Literally heard that. <laughs> Share with your pastor, anything, everything, okay? And to be frank, that's a real hope that a lot of people have, okay? So let's get real on that. Uh, another hope that I've heard with uncertainty, I hope that I will get married, okay? And I've heard that from a lot of folks who are single, and that hope, again, tied to uncertainty, like I might not. I've also heard, I hope that I will have a good marriage. Or I hope that I can make it to a good marriage or can get a good marriage. And again, I stress this, it's so tied to uncertainty that it might not happen. And the Bible, what we see about sexuality here, about being single, about being married... There is, a, there is a consistent hope that is tied to a joyous reality of the future of God's plan for these believers' life. And it's a, I can't stress this enough, and I'm stressing a lot. It's a totally different attitude. It's a totally different uh, approach to sexuality, to singleness, to marriage. And it, that leads to totally different actions. Christianity revolutionized the ideas of sex, of singleness, and of marriage. It, it doesn't for many of us today, because we may not know. Maybe we haven't heard sermons like this, or not enough sermons like this, or teaching like this, or something, I don't know, whatever. But it, going back, it revolutionized it. So let's see what it says. First, Christian hope in sex. Uh, and today I'm going to talk about sex, but I'm going to also stress Christian hope in singleness and Christian hope in being married. So it's not all about sex, but it ties in Christian hope in sex. So going to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, Corinth is in Greece. Uh, I actually train, took a train and passed through Corinth one time. Didn't stop to see the you know, remains or anything uh, like that. I was living a different life. I wasn't walking with the Lord. I knew about Corinth. like, oh, there it is. I'll go to uh, you know, somewhere else that's more fun. But Corinth is in Greece. Church in Greece. Uh, very hedonistic lifestyle. Okay? A uh, lot, of, lot of problems. I mean, sleeping with one another, um, getting drunk, taking communion. They didn't use Welches for communion. Okay, uh, literally getting drunk, getting wasted while they took communion. And so there were two big issues that the church in Corinth was dealing with. Uh, and one is, is tied to verse 13. Uh, Paul says, Paul writes, food is for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will do away uh, with both of them. The idea in, in Greek thought, okay, and it's, t- it, it's relevant to us today, is that the body, it, it doesn't really mean much. It's, it's physical matter. The soul is most important. Your spirit is most important. Uh, so whatever you do with the body, it's, it's not that big of a deal. So if you're hungry, you eat. If you're hungry for sex, you have sex. Whatever your appetites desire, uh, fulfill them. So that was one prevailing attitude at the church in Corinth. Uh, the other, well, it's really addressed in chapter 7, verse 1. We didn't read that, but I'm going to highlight it. Paul writes, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. So it was that idea too that, well, sex is dirty, sex is defiling, uh, sex really should only be used for procreation, otherwise, no. Uh, So those two contrasting views were prevalent at this church, and let me say this, are really prevalent in our culture today. Uh, This letter was written 2,000 years ago, and yet we see the same attitudes uh, in our world today. Uh, I was listening to a podcast. I was driving, taking my other two boys to their their grandparents yesterday, and a political junkie that I am, there's a a new book. I mean, I'm not going to read it, but it was about the origin of the red and blue states. And it got me to thinking, you know, you see these two attitudes really lived out. The first one, the first one, you know, the appetite and you know, if you want to do it. Uh, it's really, we think about it, tied to, or I do, maybe you do, tied to the blue states, okay? Uh, and the other one, we picture, we tie it more to the red states, although obviously they're, you know, intermeshed. But the whole idea of, well, just do what you want and can uh, have self-expression and self-gratification, okay? That's an idea that, that I tie to, like, blue state culture. And the, the idea of, like, you know, let's, let's make sure we look picture perfect in traditional conservative culture. It's tied to red states. Uh, and what is Paul saying here about sex? Well, he's saying a lot in verse 18. He's very clear. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. What's he saying there? Well, first, flee sexual immorality. The word that he uses sexual immorality is, and you've heard me say this before, porneo, okay? Uh, that doesn't mean porn, we often think of. It doesn't mean adultery, uh, it, as in sex uh, when you're married. It does mean every form of sex outside the covenant of marriage. Uh, and he's saying flee it, uh, get rid of it, don't do it. That's what the Bible says, okay? Flee that. 
Why? Well, it's really tied to what he, uh, what he alludes to in verse 16. The two will become one flesh. Uh, that is part of a, uh, a quote he uses from Genesis 2.24. And I've talked about that in marriage, that the husband would leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they will be one flesh. Jesus refers to that verse in every instance that he's asked about marriage. Paul writes about it again in Ephesians 5. So what is this one flesh? Now, we could think of it as like, okay, physical union, uh, sexual union. No, that's not what it's talking about. Uh, it literally means, and I was reading about it, well, the, the literal definition is embodied personhood. Now, you're like, oh, that's, that's too much for me, okay? It's, it's becoming one person in every way. God says, uh, he says this several times in the New Testament. He said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. He doesn't say I will pour out my spirit upon all people, but that's what he meant. So flesh is not just physical. It's in every way, all people that we are. So if he pours out his spirit, I already talked about this here in this church, that we are, we're independent and we're diverse, but we're one in Christ. There's a unity. We're independent and diverse to that ch- the lady who's coming from India. But we're still there. There's a unity there that his spirit manifests itself to where we're one. So we are, we still have some independence, but we are united in Christ. So here you're, he's saying like, yeah, you think, he's, he's basically saying, you think it's not going to mess you up. You think you can do anything you physically want or sexually want, and you can separate that from every other area of your personhood, and guess what? That doesn't happen. That when you're entering into that act, sex outside the covenant of marriage, because he's not saying, you know, don't have it at all or just use it for procreation. He's saying that this is, this is meant for whole body oneness. That even though two people will remain independent there will be a oneness of soul and mind and every way. And it is for a personal transformation that the two become one, okay? And it's really a soul-nurturing. It's really the highest view of sex ever uh, in ancient history and in our history. Uh, let me give you an example uh, with my wife. Um, not going to get to, don't, don't read into that statement. But give you an example of my wife. In marriage for uh, 14 years nearly, uh, I now, she hates this, you're like, you, you think you know me so well, but, okay, I, I know pretty much all the time, like, kind of how she's thinking about something, uh, her, how she's going to act, how she's going to respond. I don't necessarily always do things to get her to respond in the best way, but, like, I know her so well about just how her mind uh, processes things and just how she's... Wired. Now, I don't know everything, and it's a journey, as I'm going to talk about in a minute, but I have come to know her, you know, in this intimate way about, you know, how God has created her, and, and vice versa, I would say. It's fair, yeah. Now, I retain, I'm still my own person, see, but we continue to move into a journey into really oneness. So, like, I mean, I can, I can see a situation, I can think, well, here's how I'd respond, and at the same time, it's like, well, here's how Linda would respond, and it's no, instinct, instinctually, instinctively. And that's what's going on in, to go on in marriage. And that's what the, the sexual union, you know, can, it, it is to lead to. 
and why it shouldn't happen outside the covenant of marriage. And so Paul's like, man, you do, you're playing with fire. You're playing with fire. And, and I, look, I've talked to so many and no uh, personal experience of people who are like, well, you know, none of this is going to matter, and I'll just change when I get married. No. That doesn't, I'm not talking about that you might go out and have an affairs after that. What I'm talking about is that those uh, actions, those attitudes, those approaches to sexuality before marriage stay with you. And you form these soul-nurturing relationships through these physical actions that will carry over into your marriage. And I've talked about counseling, talked to a lot of folks uh, who deal with that. You call it baggage, whatever you want. So, Paul is clear. Uh, flee. That sexuality is a good gift, and it's supposed to be for personal transformation, soul nurturing, oneness, in every way. And to reflect, be, really be a foretaste of God's love for us. Let's move on to singles. Christian hope in singles. Because often, again, some of the hopes is, and some folks who are like, I'm not going to have sex until married, but I don't know if I'm going to get married. I hope to get married, and there's that uncertainty tied. Or some, they'll say in some form or fashion, you know, my life really won't come to fruition unless I'm married. Paul would say, the church would say, the Bible would say, New Testament Christianity would say, no, that's not true. Christianity revolutionized the way people were looking to look at singles. Christianity was the first uh, belief or uh, ethic or, or faith, whatever you want to call it, movement that said uh, it is totally uh, good and right and fine. You can have a uh, purpose-filled, fruitful life being single and, they would say, not having sex at all in life. I know some of you are like, man, are you serious? Yes, I am serious. That, that is Paul's writing. That is Christianity's writing. Because we buy into the lie that we say we hope, but it's really tied to uncertainty. And we don't know the certainty of God's love for us. We don't have the certainty that we will have this eternal future life uh, with purpose uh, and glory uh, and passion forever and ever. We don't know that. Because we buy it. well, we buy into something I'll show you in just a second. But 2027 20, in chapter 7. Look, Paul writes, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. He says it. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. However, if you get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people, you might want to underline this, such people will have trouble in this life. Did y'all connect with that? Are you listening? Did you see what he just said? That means if they get such people, those who get married, okay, that's anybody, that, that's the Christians, okay, such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. He's saying that marriage is one conflict after the other. I mean, amen? Anybody? Tracking with me? I mean, that's real, that's true. And he's saying, don't rush so much to, like, get married. If you're single. Like don't be in too much of a hurry to get married. Totally against. Revolution. That is revolutionary radical for our culture now. It totally cuts against uh, much of what is in our mind. Totally. But it's the Bible. The New Testament Christian belief. But he's also if you're married and you know. 
you know, don't be in such a hurry to be single or, or not be married. But if you were married and then single, don't be in such a hurry to get married again. Uh, what, he, what he's saying here is that uh, singleness uh, is a God-glorifying, uh, can have fruition and purpose in all of your life. And so I am preaching to those of you who are single, but I'm also preaching to those who just have the, have the dream uh, of, you know, the only thing hopes are tied to is true love and romance. And those might be, that, that might be people who are married now. In the ancient world in this time, the only way you had success, uh, the only way you had, uh, indivi- well, there was no individual success. Success was only tied to a family. If you're an individual, you're nothing. It had to be tied to your family. Uh, Caesar, and this was written in one of the Caesar's reign, if you were a widow and you did not get married in two years, you actually started getting a fine. Uh, you had to be tied, you had to be married, you had to be tied to some type of family, and it was only family success. There was no individual success. Like our culture, I mean, we, you know, we, we promote individual success. They, it did not. But the church was so different. It was creating a culture, a new culture, that it was okay to be single. It was okay to be independent, individual, because you had this greater family of the church, because God had this purpose and a joyous reality and future for your life. And everyone believed that. Uh, widows were given so much respect. If you read the letters of Paul, he, he, he talks about widows all the time. Uh, the care, concern, men and women. So if you're a widower, the care and concern. And they really gave you the freedom. Like you could get married if you wanted to or you could remain single. But the way they regarded widows was, uh, was the same. There's a book, uh, and don't read it, but it's gotten some traction like in preacher circles or pastor circles. It's written a while ago. It's called The Denial of death, the denial of death. And it ties to this stuff I'm talking to you about hope, the denial of death. It's written by a guy named Ernest uh, Becker. But he says, our society, our culture in the 20th century, really starting, for you history buffs out there, after World War I, because World War I was so atrocious, and you had, uh, you've heard me say I like Ernest Hemingway, they were called the lost generation, and it was true. If you read anything, it's just, there's nothing. It's, uh, there's no ultimate purpose. There's no ultimate future. It's, it's pointless. It's meaningless. Life is, unless just, so only two things. So this guy wrote really throughout the 20th century, World War I, World War II, uh, and, move, and moving into Western culture, the argument is we really don't have a hope in an ultimate purpose and future. And get this, he would say religious people, and I think this is true, religious people use religion to hide or cloak their true belief in their heart of there's no real ultimate purpose, future, or hope. That is so true, I believe, for so many folks. We'll say we believe, but really inside, there's a denial of death. I don't want to die, no death. Come on, I, want to, I can live for success, fame, promotion. I will achieve immortality here. It's so true. That's why it's gotten some traction. So, he says, what people long for, hope for, is only in true love and romance. That people want to be saved. We all do. We have that in us. Jesus saves, okay? And, I'm, and some of us here, we've, we've experienced all the things that don't save us, and this is why we do what we do, because the only way you're saved and have purpose and fulfillment and a joyous future, certain reality, is Jesus Christ. Now then, 
we buy into, well, the only way I'll have hope and future, and it's joyous, is if I find true love and romance. So culture's saying that. All the TV shows, Netflix, even if it's all these dark TV shows that totally are just bad. I mean, you know, like all these dark themes now, but there's still this belief in ultimate romance, true love, all this. Paul says, no, you're not going to find it there. You're not going to find it there. But you will find it in Christ, and there's this hope uh, for singles and married. The joyous reality. Don't put your hope, a false hope, in, in romance or true love. Put your hope in the true love of Christ. He's your lover. He's our true lover. And that's what get to the last point is in marriage, and really broken up into three quick points. Marriage, Christian hope in marriage. I would just say this. Christian hope in marriage is really tied up true Christian hope. And I say that as if many of us don't have true Christian hope in marriage. We idolize it. We, if it's not true, if it, true love and romance is gone, we're deflated. True Christian hope in marriage uh, really is about uh, an ultimate family, ultimate journey, ultimate lover. Say that if you're taking notes right. Ultimate family, ultimate journey, ultimate lover. Ultimate family, the end of the reading in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul writes, what I mean, brothers and sisters, time is limited. Verse 29. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. Uh, I believe that. I believe that because it's in Scripture. The world in this form is passing away. Uh, what he means is there, there's this idea, we call it the overlap of the ages. There's an overlap when Jesus came for the first time and when Jesus comes again. So now, the reason we pray, I'm not trying to use religious language at the opening about the supernatural power, peace, presence. The Holy Spirit's here. The Holy Spirit can baptize our hearts in a moment. The Holy Spirit is present. However, still present in this world is sin and death. So there's this overlap and that we await the, new, the second coming, the new heavens and the new earth. So he's saying the world is passing away. He's also saying, though, and this is shocking. This is revolutionary. This is right. He's saying don't, like, invest too much in your marriages. Put your hope in something more than that. Don't, uh, don't worry. Even don't worry too much about it. I mean, he's saying, if you're like, where does he say that? So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. He says, marriage, is, it's not to be your ultimate hope. Jesus Christ is. And the ultimate family is that is the church. The church. This is, I mean, this is, guys, supposed to be the ultimate family. Uh, we're in a culture, red state, you know, really, really red. You know, our idol is traditional, conservative, and we idolize the family. This is supposed to be the real deal family. And I'm just talking, paraphrasing, New Testament Christianity in the Bible. We're supposed to reflect that. And we should, and we should move to that. Because one day, this will be the only family that matters. This will be the only family, you know, the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus Christ says, Matthew 10, you can read the whole chapter, is about you're going to probably lose friends. You're going to probably lose brothers and sisters. You may lose parents if you stand for me. That's okay, he says. You're going to gain so much more in this life and the life to come. Read all of Matthew 10. It's really all about first what you lose and then what you gain. The ultimate family, Christ. 
marriage to be the ultimate journey. Marriage is good. Marriage is wonderful. Marriage is beautiful. It's a journey. It's a journey. Uh, it, going back to chapter 6, verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? As a Christian, Holy Spirit dwells in us. But we're not finished products. And so one of the, one of the hopes for marriage is that we are, and I say this to my wife, that we're excited about one another's journey. We're excited about the future God has for us as individuals, but also together. That it is a journey. We're almost, you know, Jesus talks about us, you know, a, a seed or an acorn. And so we're all kind of, we, we're, we're birthed, an acorn is born, you're new in Christ. But we need good, good soil, good family around us to grow in Christ uh, in this world. Uh, we need failure even. Uh, we need to be humble and repent. We need God's grace. And he says, you know, he says if we're going to be married, it's probably going to be one conflict after the other. But it's a journey. It's almost like if you get married, you, you really want to say, man, I'm excited about your future. I'm excited about what God has for you. I'm excited to see you grow. I'm excited to see what God does for your life. And he's, I mean, I'm going to sign up for this. It's a journey. Two quotes real quick. Uh, one is a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. Um, he, uh, he's a known writer, actually teaches at Duke, kind of a radical dude, Stanley Hauerwas. But he, writing on marriage, he said, We think self-fulfillment in marriage should lead to personal happiness. That we are going to find just the right person. And we get married and then we think we know the person. We don't. Just wait, give it a while, we'll change. Marriage changes us. The challenge is learning to know and love the stranger whom you find yourself married to. That's true. Marriage changes us. So if we look at marriage, Christian hope in marriage, hey, we've got an ultimate family. You know, I'm not putting all my chips in marriage because it's going to be one conflict after the other. But I'm excited about his or her ultimate journey. And man, I'll do everything to sign up for that journey. I want to walk with them through this life. And I'll sign up. I'm excited about it. C.S. Lewis, another quote, writing about marriage. Kind of like that acorn. He, uh, he says, God can make us a dazzling creature. A mirror reflecting back to God. The process... That process is very long and very painful. It's nothing less. If we understand, though, for ourselves and our spouses, we are not finished works, but we're really just great blocks of marble. We can be excited about the future God has for them. He was married, and he he lost his wife uh, early into their marriage. It's a journey. And then the last thing, the ultimate lover. And that is Jesus Christ. If, if Jesus is not our true love, let me just say, if Jesus is not our true love, all our other loves will be disjointed, distorted. If Jesus is not our true love, you really, and this is kind of a bold statement, if Jesus is not your true love, you really are not going to ever know love at all in this earth. Because your other loves will be disjointed. Jesus has to be our true spouse, whether you're single, whether you're married. When we make Jesus our true spouse, then it does revolutionize our attitude, our actions, our approaches to sex, to singleness, to marriage. Totally changes. I mean, he said it, read John 4, the woman at the well. She was putting all of our chips in romance and true love. She'd had five husbands. She's living with a dude now. 
why did Jesus, Jesus promised her, he said, I'll give you living water, but go call your husband. He's like, well, I've had, you know, he's not here. Well, yeah, you had five. And you, dude, you're living with now. It's like, you're trying to find living water in romance, in sex, um, in men. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. If you, if we, if we do not have Jesus, know Jesus as your true love, other loves will be disjointed. If we don't know Jesus as our true love, we're not really going to ever know love. Sex is to be a foretaste. It's a foretaste of falling into the hands of the Lord, Jesus. And if it's so dynamite, and let's say it is, right? Amen? Come on, guys. Be real, yeah. If it is, then what is it like falling into the arms of the of the Lord, of God. Uh, it's a dim reflection. Marriage is a dim reflection. And you got to know this too. We can't be, in, if you want to keep your independence, as in like, well, I want to have sex, but I'm, I'm just me, that's a lie. If you want to do that in marriage, like, well, I'm really not becoming one, but I'll, I'll marry, but, um, you know, my, that's a, you can't have intimacy without losing somewhat of your independence. And the same thing happened with God. Uh, one of the verses, I forget, I think it's 19. It says, you know, 15 through 17 in the passage. I'm going to close up here. But it's like, you are one with the Lord. The only way God was able to do that is he became weak as human. He became vulnerable. He died. For you. The only way, now, you didn't see any of this in the Old Testament, by the way. God had to come down. God had to die. And now, as Christians, we're one with Jesus Christ. One with his spirit. Yes, we're growing. Yes, it's a journey. But Jesus is in us. And he lost his independence. He gave it up for you and for me. If that doesn't melt your heart, and I'm saying, if it doesn't melt your heart, then, then we really need to pray about our priorities here. And, and I'm sure it doesn't for some of you because the, the traps of the culture are just so, like, everywhere. Well, re- you know, really what you say? I mean, yeah, it's kind of... But true love, romance, and yeah, I mean success and that's kind of what it is that's not what the bible says the bible says you want to know true love true purpose if you want to move from the certainty the uncertainty you have in the false hope when you say i well i hope and then it might not happen to the true certainty of a joyous reality of life now in the present life in the future in the new heavens and the earth life with christ forever got to know man he he did it's got to get past kind of the sunday school i heard all my life he gave up his independence he became weak he vulnerable His body was bruised, beaten, shattered. His blood was spilt for you. So now you can be one with him forever and be your true love. Jesus says, come to me. Make me your true love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much competing against this this worldview, this, this radical revolutionary of you being our true love and that changes our, our approach to, to life, our actions in life, our attitudes to sex, to singleness, to marriage. God, God, I pray for us, your people, because these are issues that we need healing from. These are issues that we need to see truly, like what you have for them. And so I pray for changed lives that begin with changed hearts in these areas. And that begins with a heart that says, you are my true love, Jesus. Thank you that we can be in a moment. In Jesus' name, amen.